Welcome back, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is totally part of that effort. All right, we're back from our winter break, um, and we're going to kick off today's episode with a really exciting interview. I am talking to Dylan Taylor. He is the CEO and chairman of Voyager Space. Uh, it's probably a company you've never heard of, but you're going to. Uh, they have the rights to build the next space station for America. Now, it's privately owned by the company, but they have the contract with NASA. So as the ISS goes into its sunset phase, the next space station is going to be a privately owned uh, entity that they've built. It's really crazy. Uh, Dylan, uh, I would say, has got to be probably the third most significant name, maybe fourth, something in that top five in the entire space industry. So a lot of people know Bezos and Musk, um, but Dylan's kind of in that bucket. He's incredible. He's got a message for us today around the importance of space as an industry for social advancement. A lot of us get tangled up in thinking about space in the context of the mission to Mars. And it seems pipe dreamish. Uh, Dylan kind of brings us back down to reality, reframing space as a unique environment for scientific research, manufacturing, etc. So space is going to make life a lot better here on Earth. And so we're at the very beginning of a journey where this new frontier becomes extremely relevant for all the rest of us. So without further ado, very excited to bring you Dylan Taylor. Dylan, thanks for being here today. My pleasure, Mark. Great to be here. Uh, let's start at the top. Would you give an overview of Voyager Space? Sure, sure. Yeah, Voyager Space is a space infrastructure company, and it was purpose-built uh, to address what I think and, and others think are important needs for the industry, and that is to take this new space phenomenon, this high technology, high innovation, uh, phenomenon, probably best exemplified by SpaceX, and to scale that such that these large infrastructure projects that are necessary if we're going to move deeper into space uh, get built. Uh, so most notably, Voyager is working on building the replacement to the International Space Station. Uh, that's in partnership with Airbus, uh, and we have a prime contract with NASA to, to do that. Uh, so that's the big project. That's called Starlab. But in addition to that, there are other infrastructure projects we're working on as a company. Uh, we're about 700 employees uh, uh, scattered around uh, 11 offices uh, total. And um, again, our amb uh, ambition is to uh, take the capability that exists within new space and harness it to really uh, enable these next generation infrastructure projects. And uh, so far, so good. And we're we're having a lot of fun doing it, and uh, I think the industry needs uh, another company out there that's capable of doing big things. So over dinner conversation, people are like, yo, what do you do? You're like, I'm building the next space station. <laughs> it does come up. Yes, it does come up. <laughs> most people, you know, it's funny, Mark. Some people don't even know there is a space station. If you can believe that. I've had that conversation. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, 
It is it is a interesting uh, party trick to say that uh, you're building the replacement to the ISS. <laughs> uh, what's the timing on that? You guys had a big announcement recently. Um, we did. I know you're yeah. starting to put some pieces into place here. We we yeah we are. So a couple things. One is we we closed on the international uh, transatlantic joint venture with Airbus. It's called Starlab Corp. So that's the entity that's going to build the station. That was a big deal because you got to go through, as you would imagine, regulatory approval and and uh, a CFIUS review and things like that to get that done. So that was closed uh, a couple of weeks ago, and then just yesterday we announced uh, that we've signed a, a launch agreement with SpaceX to launch Starlab on Starship, uh, which is their next generation rocket. Uh, our space station is unusual because it's a single launch to orbit solution, so we're not assembling. Uh, the space station on orbit. We're building it on the ground and we're launching it in a single launch to space. Uh, so that was another big announcement. We're looking to get this in orbit by 2028. Um, and I think I think that's still on target. Uh, it's important it gets up there before 2030 because that's the target date for the International Space Station to be deorbited. And obviously ah, we don't so want- we'll have we don't want redundancy. To, right. Yeah, we don't Got want it. to have a gap, you know, so-called space station gap where, uh, you know, the U.S. and its allies don't have any solution up there at any given time. So it's really important we get ours flying before the other one comes down. Why do we need a space station? Just kind of base principles here. We've had one for a while. I think to the average consumer, we're imagining people are growing plants in space and it seems like a neat party trick and kind of like a hobby, but I think you probably think it's more than that. Why is a space station important to mankind? Yeah, no, it definitely is, Mark. So I think there's a few different angles on that. One is my oldest daughter's 21. She's never lived in a world where humans didn't live in space, right? We've had humans on the International Space Station continuously for 22 years now. So geopolitically, I think it's incredibly important. Uh, to show the international cooperation, uh, you know, Russia's on that station that can uh, control the propulsion. Uh, and for years, the U.S. only had Russian rockets to take them up there, right, before SpaceX came along. So I think geopolitically, it's one of the best things humans have ever done. I think it's worthy of a Nobel Peace Prize. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a tribute to what's possible uh, in international cooperation. On the scientific side, uh, a recent NASA uh, administrator, I won't quote him by name, said to me that there's never been an experiment done on the International Space Station where we haven't learned something. So we're doing real research on the International Space Station. And in fact, our company is doing much of that uh, payload, uh, the, those, those missions to the space station, because we're the largest commercial user of the International Space Station. But we're doing about uh, the the industry is doing about $400 million of scientific research on the ISS today. That includes biopharma drug development, uh, ag tech, as you, as you referred to uh, earlier in the conversation, uh, concepts in space manufacturing. And for those of you who don't know, the International Space Station is in microgravity because it's in continuous freefall. That's a magic laboratory. And the reason for that is there are things that you can do in microgravity that you simply can't do here on the earth. So for example, in biopharma drug development, uh, one of the key things with drug development is formulation. How will that drug work in a human body? 
And to test that here on Earth, because of gravity, uh, you either put it in an animal or you put it in a human. Uh, those are your two choices, both expensive and, and risky and, uh, you know, have other issues. If you do that same formulation, that same experiment in microgravity, you get that third dimension because it's not being squashed by gravity. So the protein folds, the uh, uh, enzymatic reactions, all those things are different in microgravity than they are here on Earth. So we get breakthrough uh, drug development in space as well. And just final point I'll, I'll make is, uh, you know, I, I tell people uh, the commercial space stations coming online do not address demand, they create demand. And by that, I mean, there would be vast more research done on orbit if it was easier to do research on orbit. And we've got a few issues with the ISS. One is it was never designed. Uh, it's kind of a hodgepodge. It was never master planned as a laboratory. That's why ours is called Star Lab. It's optimized for that. Second is astronaut time. Astronaut time is at a huge premium. And about half of astronaut time on the ISS is dedicated to maintaining the International Space Station. And it's because mm -hmm. it's so old and the systems are failing. So imagine a brand new shiny uh, commercial space station with a new car smell, optimized as lab space with astronauts who can do 100% of their time dedicated to scientific research. And imagine all the breakthroughs we as humanity could have under that scenario. Let's make this real, though. I mean, what I know there's a bunch of science that's been done up there. Any of that made it into commercialization in the form of things we know? um to date yeah i mean there's lots of um sort of silly examples you know velcro uh, teflon memory foam pillows uh all those things were invented uh based upon space programs um but there are actual drugs there's actually one cancer drug uh which i, I don't know by name that's been developed on orbit that is considered a breakthrough drug um another treatment for diabetes has been developed uh in uh, up there and many drugs that um, we knew that they were effective, but again, formulation is a key element of getting drug delivery into a human. So a lot of those have been reformulated based upon research on orbit. So there's many examples of these drugs uh, being refined and or um, invented uh, in microgravity. So manufacturing in space is going to start saving lives on Earth. Yeah, well, manufacturing in space is actually a, a different topic altogether. Um, believe it or not, you can actually manufacture things in space that are a thousand X better than here on Earth. Uh, one example would be a fiber optic, uh, or, or I'm sorry, a fiber optic cable. Uh, so when you manufacture that, think of gravity as a convective force, right? And convection is uh, all about knocking molecules together. And that's where chemistry comes from. When you extrude fiber optic cable here on Earth, you get inclusions, you get defects. Uh, when you do that in microgravity, you get essentially a thousand X less inclusions or defects in that fiber optic cable. So it's vastly, vastly superior to anything that you could ever create here on Earth. And so that's just mm. one example. There are also shapes that we can create in microgravity that you simply can't create here on Earth because of the uh, the weight of gravity, if you will. Uh, so there's lots of examples of that. Um, and uh, we're just getting started with space manufacturing. There's so many interesting things that we can do 
And again, we just haven't, we haven't fully explored that because the constraint has been lab space and astronaut time. So the other one, the other example that um, I found fascinating was or printing organs, specifically mm -hmm. eyeballs. Can you, can you touch on that for a second? Yeah. So 3d printing is a thing uh, on orbit. In fact, I, I personally had commissioned the first object commission uh, manufactured in space by a private citizen. It was a gravity meter. We did that about 10 years ago, but with 3d printing in microgravity, uh, again, you can do things that you can't do here on earth. And organ printing is one of them because you essentially need to lay down biological material in such a way that the whole system needs to be complete, uh, before, uh, you expose it to gravity. Right, because if you're exposing each layer to gravity, it's gonna it's gonna get squashed. But once you create the entire object, uh, and it has the surface tension to keep it, you know, as an eyeball, for example, um, then you can do that in microgravity and presumably bring that via down mass back down to Earth and utilize it. So organ printing is something that's very uh, cutting edge, but obviously that would be a total game changer if they can continue to refine that. Uh, that technology. So awesome. We're at the very beginning of the story. And when you talk about these types of technologies, it's so clear. Uh, geopolitical implications. Um, the prior space station was in partnership with a bunch of countries, most notably Russia. Um, and they were always ahead of us on, it seemed like on a lot of the space tech and rocketry. I'm sure I'm wrong on that. Um, we're in a little bit of a new era now. Um, with SpaceX and our whole industry really going private and building out. How does, uh, how does this lab look different from a geopolitical standpoint? Well, I think the model's been inverted, right? So it's, a, it's commercially owned. It'll be owned by Voyager uh, in partnership with our you know, other uh, joint venture partners. Um, so a sovereign nation won't own it. Uh, that's one point. But second point is, uh, by creating, let's say, international partnerships in business, we can provide access to uh, many of the countries who are on the station today. You know, Russia's an, ex an exclusion because of some of the embargo and you know, some of the things for U.S. nationals doing business there. But literally, Japan, Canada, European uh, Union, which are the other countries on the station, uh, are all going to be part of our project as well. So I think geopolitically, we can recreate a lot of that. The, the bigger dynamic that's happening today is we have the rise of China and China's space capability. China has their own space station, right? It just was launched uh, about a year and a half ago. And, um, you know, it's more advanced than the International Space Station by all accounts. So I think where we're headed, Mark, it, you know, it's interesting. I use the analogy of Apple versus Android. We're mm -hmm. really developing two different ecosystems. Uh, a U.S.-led, Western-led ecosystem, and a Chinese-led uh, ecosystem. The real question is, you know, we went at the U.N., they had 22 space agencies registered at the beginning of the 2010s. That number is now over 90. So many, many, many countries have space ambitions. Many of these countries have resources, Saudi Arabia, India. So the real question is, where will those countries gravitate? I don't think they can have a leg in both camps. I think they need to pick. So I think we're going to have a, a, a big sorting between the, the nations of the world into these two different ecosystems. And um, that's, that's sort of what I see. So almost think of it as a, 
a little bit of a cold war uh, in space between those two ecosystems. And those lines are mostly already drawn, right? There's a handful of countries sitting in the middle. But yeah, you, that's you know true. The NATO countries already, and right. Yep. I think the question is Russia, Gulf states, India, South America. Th- those are some of the open issues in terms of where they where they go. Right. Um, <clears throat> this is privately owned. It is. That's a big concept. I mean, the idea that, I mean, that's got to be the biggest flex ever when you can tell people at dinner, yeah, you're on a space station. Um, what's the, uh, how do you think about the pros and cons um, from a advancement of the industry, most importantly, of having this be private? Right. And this has been the whole macro trend, right? This went from a public venture in, via NASA to, you know, SpaceX really kicking things off. But now there's a whole ecosystem of folks out there. Right. On the commercial I'm side. a big believer in, in the privatization piece. I know that's controversial. And even people within NASA are not totally on board necessarily. Um, they have factions that are pro commercialization versus not. Uh, the clearest example I can provide is. Um, is launch, which you alluded to, Mark. Space shuttle, right? Which uh, unfortunately had two tragic accidents, as we know, Columbia and Challenger. Um, If you took a 16-ounce bottle of water and you sent it to orbit on the space shuttle, it was $100,000. $100,000 per pound to orbit. So they they killed the shuttle program. They put out bids for uh, private launch. The winners on that were SpaceX and uh, Orbital ATK, which is now owned by Northrop Grumman, and then later for um, crewed uh, spaceflight, it was uh, SpaceX and Boeing. Fast forward 10, 12, 14 years later, SpaceX makes orbit, right? At that time, only, I think, five countries had ever made orbit, much less a private company. Then they started reusing rockets, right? Reusing the rocket booster. I think everyone's seen that magical image of the dual rocket booster uh, landing, landing simultaneously. That was back in February 2018. In my mind, that, that, was the, you know, that was the moment, right? That was the moment that everything changed. And now with the Falcon system, SpaceX is launching about every three and a half days, which is insane. Uh, and it's about $1,500 uh, a pound to orbit. So, you know, 100x improvement. And then they're working on the next generation rocket, which is what we've agreed to launch Starlab on, Starship. And we're looking at $400 a pound, roughly, to orbit uh, once that makes orbit. So these are complete game changers. And I don't think you get that innovation. I don't think you get that disruption if you stay with the status quo. And so I think NASA realizes that. And they realize that with private space stations, they're going to get much more innovation. They're going to get things um, implemented that they hadn't considered before. Uh, The private sector can take a bit more risk in terms of uh, ideas. Uh, So I think ultimately it benefits everybody. It benefits NASA, it benefits the private industry, it benefits humanity. Uh, So I'm I'm a big believer in privatization. Now, what's the, I mean, you guys landed a pretty massive public contract. Um, as a private sector guy, you know, I'm always been building, building companies and investing in companies for years and years now, I guess decades and decades getting old. Um, as I look at this though, 
Uh, I've never journeyed into picking up government contracts. It just kind of seems like it's in the territory um, beyond where there's sunlight. Like we're entering into a new environment, a new level of complexity, a whole bunch of unknowns. Can you shed any light on kind of what that journey is? And I'm sure when you demystify it, it's just a bunch of paperwork and relationships and like anything else. But uh, would love to hear what that looked like for you to get signed off on to build the next base station. Yeah, it's uh, the answer is a little bit. It depends, right? So if you have um, a contract with someone like NASA, which is a civil agency, you have a whole set of regulations and have to do's. If you have a contract with the Department of Defense, let's say, uh, which is a military and defense organization, national security organization, those set of requirements are different uh, and typically more stringent. And then within defense, if it's a classified program, which you know we operate several classified programs uh, at Voyager, uh, some of which I'm not even aware of, which is interesting as chairman and CEO um, of the company, <laughs> but but. Um, but though you know those have an, another layer of uh, requirements and regulation, so it really does depend. Government contracts, I think, is is too vague of a term to define it uh, generally. Mm -hmm. But what I'll say with with NASA, they're a great partner, and where they've ended up with these, um, they're called Space Act agreements, and it's a special type of contract only NASA can award that essentially allows you to have a milestone based. Uh, compensation system. So once you have been awarded the contract, you lay out all the milestones to get from point mm. A to point B. You negotiate what those milestones will be in terms of time and in terms of uh, money being delivered uh, for various milestones. Has to add up to the total contract value, obviously, and the and the time frame needs to match what NASA's requirements are. But there's a lot of flexibility uh, within those two parameters to establish those milestones. And um, I think it works quite well. We're incented to chase the next milestone and make sure we get it on time and and uh, hit the requirement that the milestone has outlined. And I think NASA uh, knows if a program's in trouble, they're going to know it pretty quick, right? Because they're going to start right. missing milestones. So I think it's a good approach. Uh, NASA, they're great partners. They really are. And I'm not just saying that because uh, I'm being recorded. I mean, I really believe uh, they're great partners. So for the innovative engineer sitting on a campus somewhere right now, dreaming about getting into this game and helping out, where do they start? What's the first step you do if you want to start developing a relationship and get into this? Is there a, a lawyer you call? Is there a group you reach out to? Do you got to go work in the industry for a bit? What's first base? Because I feel like once people get into a system, it usually helps them figure it. You kind of, it becomes self-navigable. Right. Where does this begin? Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's a couple of different ways to look at that. So if you're a recent college grad and you want to get into the space industry, uh, I would start with any kind of internship, any kind of work experience you can get within the industry, even if it's unpaid. Uh, I, would, I would really encourage people to do that. Uh, in addition to that, I would seek out people in the industry, cold email them, you know, LinkedIn, whatever you need to do. Let them know what your ambitions are and what you're trying to do and see if you can't find one or two people that can be a virtual mentor for you. Uh, you know, I respond to those emails from time to time. I get a lot of them, but I respond to those from time to time. So I think, I think tenacity wins the game there. 
but ultimately, you've got to also decide what kind of uh, career path you want to have, right? Do you want safe and secure working for a big company on really big projects, but you're just a very small part of that? Or do you want, want to work in a more dynamic environment, you know, uh, high speed, lots of innovation, but could, you know, it could fail, uh, you know, in six months kind of thing. And then you're out on your, out on your ear and you're looking for a new opportunity. So I think your risk tolerance and your ability to, uh, you know, uh, security, I think is what, whatever dial you want that security, financial security, uh, stability dial that will dictate kind of where you want to push into the industry. Uh, but SpaceX is always hiring, you know, they're growing like a weed. Uh, they do churn through some people because they work them very hard. I think people get there and they say, well, this isn't, this isn't for me. So I think those are the kinds of things that I would encourage people to do. There's also some really good fellowships out there, uh, for young women. Brooke Owens fellowship is a great one. Uh, Matthew Iwakitz, which is another fellowship named after a young man who, uh, tragically died of, um, of cancer at a young age. But those kinds of fellowships kind of catapult you into the industry as well, because they'll place you at one of a handful of uh, prominent space companies. All right. Another question on behalf of the entrepreneurs out there. We're in the infancy of this industry. I mean, it's, the doors are open now, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. What does the industry need? What, what, if you could wave a wand or herd people towards a mission within the industry, what is it? How can they help? It's yeah, no, it's, it's a brilliant question because this is the way my brain works, right? I start with the end state and then I think, what does the industry need? That's why we created Voyager. And before that, that's why we created uh, conduits for early stage capital because that, that's where the industry was plugged at that time. You know, I, it's, it's human resource, honestly, Mark. I, you know, people ask me what keeps you up at night as CEO of Voyager. And uh, it's, it's talent. It's attracting, retaining talent. So I think the industry needs more talent. Um, it's attracting a lot of talent today, but we still need more and more talent. So the, how can people help? You know, if you're passionate about space, get in the industry, no matter what your skill set is. And uh, if you're not passionate about space, but still want to help encourage and, you know, uh, inspire other people within your network to seek out uh, space as a career. But that that's really the constraint right now is, uh, human capital. Uh, Dylan, I'm going to brag about you for a second. I know you got this in your bio and everywhere else, but uh, if I have this right, you're the youngest human to go to the bottom of the ocean and into space. Um, I think you were think that's true. Yeah. 606 person human ever to be in space. And you did also do a submarine dive. Um, way deep into the ocean. What compelled you? How did you, you know, before this, you were a successful real estate executive. There's been a transformation here. Um, how did that sure. happen? What's, what's the thinking? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try to be, I'll try to be succinct here, but you know, my ambition getting out of college was to be a fortune 500 CEO, make a bunch of money and um, live happily ever after, right? That was sort of my motivation. I was very amped up. I was hyper competitive and that was my fuel, right? That's what I, that's what I was doing. And so I ended up successfully running large public companies, a bunch of different industries, electronics, uh, banking, 
uh, real estate, as you mentioned. But I reached a point in my career, I was in my late 30s, about 38, 39, where I was successful in quotes, but pretty miserable, you know, feeling like I wasn't living a purposeful life, feeling like I wasn't uh, working with people that I respected or uh, that I looked up to, uh, that I wanted to further enrich, frankly. And so I really did a lot of soul searching. Uh, there was a book I read that really changed my life. I don't know if you've read it, Mark, called The Last Lecture. And uh, it's also a lecture on YouTube if you want to check it out. It's by I've Randy watched Pausch. the video. It's yeah, powerful. Incredible. It's powerful. And, you know, I won't give it away to spoil it for the listeners. I would encourage them to seek it out. But what I took away from it is uh, you have to follow your passion. And you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have your day job and still do your passions on the side. And then ultimately those passions become your day job. And if you don't know what your passions are, because a lot of people say, well, I don't really know what that is. Randy says, go back in time. And the further you get and the closer you get to your childhood, the more accurate that passion will be. And for me, it had always been space, always since I was earliest memory. So I'm like, wow, that's, that is my passion, right? So then that's when I really started getting into the industry. I started as an investor not because I'm a great investor necessarily, but it was a way for me to contribute to the industry, contribute some capital, maybe some business acumen, uh, because I had some scar tissue running large companies. So I, I had some insight that maybe others didn't uh, in the industry. So that's how I got into it. And, um, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, every day's a dream because you're doing exactly what you love to do. And I had the opportunity to go to space, which was a lifelong dream, right? It's like one of those things where it's like, I want to play with play in the NFL and be a Hall of Fame quarterback, right? It's like, right? It, it, it's it's silly to even dream it because it's crazy. Uh, so going to space, being a, a an astronaut, uh, you know, it just seemed seemed insane. And I thought, you know, if they privatize commercial space flight, maybe in twenty years uh, I'll go. But uh, I ended up uh, getting an opportunity to go very early. I went in December of twenty one. And uh, life-changing flight, completely changed my, my life. I was on the flight, if you might remember, with Michael Strahan. Uh, so that was really covered pretty widely. It was live on CNN. And, you know, Michael was hosting Good Morning America from the, the pad and all this sort of thing. But, uh, but that was a life changer. And then after that space flight, you know, back to the ocean, deep ocean stuff, you know, people assume when you go to space, they assume two things. They assume you have resources. And they assume you're crazy, right? <laughs> Those are the two things that, <laughs> that, they, that they think. And um, so I had this opportunity to go with Victor Vescovo, uh, who had the sub, the only sub capable of going to the bottom of the Mariana Trench and got invited to go with Victor. And for me, it was like, how do you say no to something like that? Right? It's like, right. do you want to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench? I'm like, yeah, I think I do. You know, I didn't even know that right. that was a thing. but. So, and that ended up being the second coolest thing I've ever done in my life because we went to a part of the Mariana Trench that no humans had ever been to before. So I felt like a true explorer, true pioneer. Uh, we, you know, we discovered things down there that they didn't know was there, were there. So that was super cool. Um, so yeah, that's how that all came about. But um, space flight, I mean, that was the dream came, that, that came true for me. And uh a day I'll never forget, obviously. That, that's an inspiring message. And I think when we all hear 
you know, follow your passions, but, um, you have done it, my friend. Uh, this is real. Thank you. And now you're, oh, you. you know, building a space station, which sounds kind of not to be cheesy here out of this world. Um, the, uh, Thing you mentioned before, I'm really curious about it. You know, I'm an active investor in the early stage world. Uh, you became a space tech investor, and I I know you did it from a place of contributing to the industry. Any thesis or advice on kind of how to look at that market? You know, for folks out there who are anyone who's kind of raised their hand, they're seeing space tech now show up every now and then. Very few of us out there are actually full time focused space investors, right? Yeah, are we playing yeah, with fire? What's the way to think about that? Well, there's a couple of concepts here. Some of these are more general concepts, but you know, I, I have people come to me and they're like, I want to make a space investment. I'm like, no, you don't. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, if you're not going to make eight to 10 space investments, you should make zero space investments because no one on planet earth is smart enough to pick winners and losers. No one, uh, including, you know, and I put myself in that category. So making one space investment is a mistake, in my view. Uh, if you have, let's say, I don't know, seven to 10 high quality, well vetted uh, space investments, I think it's the opposite. I think it's low risk. I think you're going to be guaranteed of holding, you know, a 25X probably in your, in your uh, hand. Um, in my case, I made about 50 investments. Uh, just one in particular was 156X. So yeah, that obviously matter. returns. All the rest were good. It, all the rest were good. And there were a couple, there was actually another 100X in there and a couple of 50Xs. So, but a bunch were wipeouts. So I think, um, you know, indexing yourself is important. The other thing is if someone's like, I need you to sign an NDA because we've got this secret idea, I just decline all that stuff, right? Because the idea is totally irrelevant, completely irrelevant. Everyone has good ideas. It's all about the team. It's all about how are you going to execute on that idea? So for me, I'm 95% the team, right? There's never been a business plan written that was implemented the way it was written, so far as I know, right? There's always going to be obstacles. There's always going to be a brick wall. There's always going to be something that comes up. So you want a team that can pivot, navigate, go over walls, through walls, around walls. And um, yeah, so I, it, it's sort of a simplistic approach, Mark, but honestly, People are like, you know, it's all about the technology. It's all about the idea. No, it's absolutely not about that. It's about the, it's about the who. Yeah. This, this harkens back to more traditional venture capital back in the semis world, semis world, you know, or maybe even pharmaceuticals now. When you're doing a B2B SaaS company, you can underwrite that. But the risk involved in a space tech company, it, there's so many unknowns to me as an outsider. Um, so anyway, I appreciate the commentary. Last question for you, uh, kind of an open-ended one, but hopefully you do something crazy with it. Uh, if you were king of America, what would you change? Uh, oh boy. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, look, I, I'm in the camp. You can do that in the space that, lens if you want. Yeah, well, that, that, that's just it. I mean, my, my dream. So let me just tell you what I would do. If I was king, Star Labs built. I would convene a meeting of the G20 and or the National uh, UN Security Council on Starlab. That's what I would do. And why? Because I, I, you know, imagine this big conference table, everyone sitting around it, experiencing the overview effect because they're seeing the earth from space. I think you would get a different outcome. 
you know, Hmm. stick with me for a second. We have all these problems that seem intractable, right? Climate change, income inequality, mass migration, you know, pick your topic. A lot of people say, well, we haven't found the wrong, uh, the right solution yet. Well, I don't think we have the right perspective. I think that we lack perspective. And the right perspective is that we've got 99.10 9s in common and we squabble over things that are not terribly important. And when you're up there, it becomes so obvious, so obvious, right? There's, there is no other people. There is no other place. There's here, right? We all live in the same house. We're all siblings. I mean, that's, that's just the, that's the reality. But a lot of people don't see it. So if I was king, I would, I would convene a meeting on Starlab. That was a beautiful wisdom. With that, thank you. thank you very much for doing this today. Thank you, Mark. Great to be on. As expected, Dylan had a lot of wisdom to drop. He is taking on Herculean challenges. I can't imagine the amount of pressure and complexity in building the next space station that they're launching in one piece. Um, a lot of nuance to what he's doing. Uh, I hope it was an instructional bit of eye-opening uh, conversation where you can see how space is at some point going to fit into your life. Uh, and I hope it also this conversation also attracts more people to the market. Uh, it's a real frontier. It's going to have real direct impact. And we need many of our best and brightest chasing after it. Anyway, thanks for listening. And we'll catch you soon.